Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Uh, thanks for fighting the rain or the weather and the parking and all that. We just really appreciate you being here. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. <coughs> In just a minute, we're going to be going into our time of teaching, but I, I too have some announcements. We've got so much going on this month. Uh, hopefully this week, uh, this week on Friday, you should have received a ministry update letter from me. And there I highlighted seven key issues as we kick off the start of the year. And I'm not going to go over all that. If you, if you miss the letter for any reason, out on the patio at the point, they have hard copies. You can get that or just check your email and see if you missed it. But uh, I do want to highlight a couple of things. You know, the last, last Sunday night of this month, it's the 29th, we're having an all-church encounter here in the evening. Now, if you've never been to an encounter, it's a, it's a night for kind of focused uh, for worship and prayer. I'll be doing a little vision casting uh, for the new year. But this year, it's going to be uh, uh, extra special because, you know, at the end of that meeting, we have to have a kind of a short meet. Uh, end of that night, we do like a short 10-minute segment where we just kind of introduce our elders, voted elders, voted on our 2023 budget, and so on. But this year... Uh, we've got something else. We're, we're also going to be voting on our new bylaws that I wrote to you about. And so those are on the website now. You can check them out in pre- preparation for that. Uh, but also that night, it's going to be a major celebration for this, this great milestone that we passed. I shared last weekend, shared in the letter, that, uh, that as of this fall, we've, we've paid off our mortgage and we're finally debt-free uh, as a church. <clears throat> yeah, so we really want to celebrate that. And so uh, after the encounter service, we're going to have just a great time, kind of a party time out on the, the patio, maybe the lower uh, parking area. We're bringing a special catered desserts for that. It's all free of charge. It's just a great time to celebrate. And so I want to make sure you get, all get that on your calendar. And also, as always, uh, whenever we will be, you know, vote on the, the budget, we, any kind of votes like this, we always do, um, we always have Q&A sessions a couple weeks beforehand. So this weekend, uh, after, after this service, Next weekend, after all the services, over in the summit, which is sort of a, this one of the smaller buildings on the far side of campus, we'll have some of our elders there, some of our staff there to answer any questions you might have about the proposed budget, the elders, uh, bylaws, or anything else you want to know. So I just want to make sure you're aware of that. But the big thing is make sure you get the 29th uh, on the, on the uh, program. We want to sort of pack this place out as we celebrate and look forward to the new year. Amen. They're looking forward to that. All right, so we're going to go into our time of teaching, and if, if you haven't already inside your program, it's a, a green and white message note sheet, and take that out. And if you all are ready to go, then I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yes. Okay. So Father, we're hungry to grow. Uh, we're hungry to learn, and as we, we continue this new series on this important topic of worldview and talk about some incredibly big picture ideas, Father, we just pray you'd come and and be our guide. I know that for some, it'll be a little bit of a challenge. For others, it'll be kind of right up their alley. But wherever we're at, I pray that you would speak in a powerful way today. And as your church, we would gather around your teaching, your word, and that we would listen and grow together. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today in West Texas. Um, That's where he's, he's grown up. That's where he was born. Uh, he's, he was born into a very conservative Southern Baptist home and church. And so from the time he was young, he learned about Jesus and the Bible and so on. And he just always kind of accepted it as true. It's the word of God's true. But when he got into his senior year of high school, he began to have questions. And the reason is he started reading the, 
the writings of some famous writers have a completely different worldview. He started reading the writings of Charles Darwin. He started reading the, 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 uh, the writings of Sigmund Freud, the famous psychologist. And this began raising questions in his mind about what he believes and why he believes. And so he, he went to his church and he began to ask those questions and he was told, we're Baptists and good Baptists don't ask those kinds of questions. And of course, that wasn't very satisfying to him. And so finally, he graduated, went to college. And of course, in college, he was exposed to a whole new wide plethora of worldviews that challenged Christianity, that came from a different spot. And uh, he did really well in college. In fact, he did so well that he was awarded a prestigious fellowship to Harvard Divinity School. And when he got to Harvard, he was exposed to even more kind of anti Christian worldview writings. And one of the men that had the greatest impact on him was the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a very gifted writer, and he lived in the 1800s, the 19th century. And Nietzsche saw the implications of what we'll talk about later today, materialism. And he said, hey, if we're just here as a result of billions of years of random accidents, then there's no real basis for morality. There is no right and wrong. There's no meaning. There's no purpose in life. And morality is something just created by the weak to protect them against the strong. And all that's really left for humans is the will to power. And the more he read Nietzsche's writings, the more he read Nietzsche's critique, his harsh criticism of the white bread Christianity of of Europe at the time, the more the young man felt drawn to this teaching. And so one of his classes, he decided to write a paper on Nietzsche, and he did, and he thoroughly researched it. And he, when he went to, he, and then he made an appointment with his professor to, to discuss it. And when he went in, he expected his professor at Harvard Divinity School to push back, maybe point out some of the weaknesses of Nietzsche's arguments. As a young man sat there with his head in his hands, he couldn't even look the professor in the eye, and he said, Nietzsche is one. And instead of the professor pushing back or challenging him, he said, I understand, gave him an A minus on the paper. And the young man went out to enter into a new era of his life that he would later look back on and describe as the stupid years. <laughs> well, today we are continuing this series in worldview, 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 renewing your mind. And if you were here last week, you may remember this. So we kicked off this series with a couple definitions uh, of what we mean by worldview. The first was a very academic, technical, more thorough. Second one was sort of a working definition that I've, I've written out for us to use throughout the series. And, and we don't have time today to go back and kind of review that, that longer uh, definition. I would encourage you that if you weren't here last week, uh, that you would go onto our YouTube channel and you would listen because it kind of lays a foundation for the whole series. Um, but if you're here, you'll remember that I gave this working definition. And I do want to start with that today just to set us up for where we're going. That a worldview is our big picture view of reality. It is based on our deepest assumptions about the most important questions of life. Questions like, is there a God or is the universe all there is? 
Is there such a thing of right and wrong? If so, how do we find it? Is there meaning? Is there purpose in life? What happens after death? And so on. Kind of the, the, the most important questions that the human race has always asked. And so today, uh, we're going to kick off uh, this part of the series. We're going to kick off with one of the most important questions. In fact, it is the most important question that every worldview has to answer. And once you answer it, then it, it kind of sets you up for uh, how you're going to answer a lot of the other questions. And the question has to do with ultimate reality, or what in philosophy we might call prime reality. What is the ultimate reality in life from which all other realities flow? And surprisingly, there's really only two or three options with this, you know, the way you answer this. So one option would be uh, that there's some sort of God. There's some sort of God is ultimate reality, and that from that God came everything else that we know. Uh, A second option would be kind of the, the option of materialism, Right, that uh, we'll be talking about this more later, but, but the, that the universe is all there is. The universe itself is the, the source of all that we see and know. And the final option will be some form of a, a combination of those two, uh, like pantheism would be an example. And so what we're going to do is just take a few minutes and we're going to discuss these three kind of big worldview answers to this core question, most important question of life. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Worldview. Theism, naturalism, and pantheism. Now, remember, this is the point where some of you are going to be, I'm checking out, I'll check back in in 10 minutes. Uh, but remember what I said, that I want to challenge you some in this series. We're going to go through this very quick. We're going to, we're going to break it down easily. Um, and so this is going to lay a foundation for where we're going today, all right? So let's talk about these three basic options. Let's start with theism. So if you're a theist, you believe that there is some sort of God, we haven't defined that God yet, but there's some sort of God who has created all the rest of reality. Now, you don't have to be a Christian theist, you could be a pantheist, I mean, uh, excuse me, you could be like a, a Muslim theist, or you could be a Jewish theist, right? But for this series, we're going to focus on Christian theism, because that's kind of what this series is about, how does Christian worldview compare with other uh, of the major worldviews, right? So let's, let's talk about, a little bit about uh, uh, Christian theism. Uh, when you walked in today, you may not have known this, but if you're a believer in Jesus, his word, then you are, a, by definition, a Christian theist. That's what you are, right? So let's talk about sort of the Christian worldview, right? Um, we're just gonna give some basics today of the Christian worldview, but this will set us up for where we're going. So if you're, uh, so as followers of Jesus, we open the Bible, Uh, The moment we open that on very first page, we're introduced to a creator, right? And this creator is uh, infinitely powerful, um, uh, infinitely uh, brilliant. Uh, He's creative. Uh, He's a God who loves beauty and order and a God that is completely good. And out of this goodness creates everything else, the entire cosmos. And when he gets done, he says it's very good. And so he's the source. So the high point of the creation in Genesis chapter 1 is the creation of the first man, the first woman. And we're told something very significant, that this first couple, this first man and woman, were made in God's image. In other words, in certain ways, we are like God. And because we're like God, we can have relationship with God and relationship with one another. And we're not only like God, but we are created, we're commissioned to rule over the creation for him. Right? So, so that's how the story starts. Now, as you, if you're familiar with the Christian story, 
uh, you know that what happens that very early in this story, in chapter three, this first king and queen created to rule over creation rebel against the creator. And of course, when you rebel against the source of all life, the end result is death. And it's death in every level. It's not just like physical death, it's spiritual death in our relationship with God. It's intellectual, psychological death, kind of a a death within ourselves. It's a moral death. Uh, It's a relational death, a breakdown between people. And ultimately, it's a cosmic death. We're told that when this first couple rebelled, that because they ruled over the cosmos, that all the cosmos fell with them when they rebelled, right? So in theology, we call this the fall, the fall of, the fall of our, our race. So the rest of the story of the Bible is really the story of God's response to that rebellion. And what you'd expect is that God would, would respond by wiping out this world and starting over again, but he doesn't. The story of the Bible is how God is gonna pursue us in spite of that rebellion He's going to pursue us through the nation of Israel and then through the Messiah to draw us back to himself, to restore our relationship with God, to restore us to be the people we were created to be, and then to one day bring all of heaven and earth restored, healed, and healed and refreshed uh, in a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus comes back. So that's kind of a short version of the Christian worldview, right? And there's a lot of things we'll talk about more later, but that's kind of a, uh, an intro to it. So, so when you talk about Christian theism and you say, how does, uh, how does Christianity answer the question, what's ultimate reality? We say there's a creator God who's ultimate reality and all, all other reality is contingent on him, comes from him, right? Let's talk about the second view. The second view is naturalism, and this is probably the most common view of our culture today. So in naturalism, when you say, what is ultimate reality, uh, the naturalists will say, well, the universe is ultimate reality. And uh, that everything there is, everything we see, everything we are, is a result of billions of years of random accidents in conjunction with the laws of nature, physics, and so on, uh, and the law of natural selection. So the universe is all there is. There is no God. There is no spiritual beings. Uh, the entire world is material, and that's all there is. So a great example of this would be the famous, um, the famous uh, astronomer Carl Sagan. Some of you will remember he did a very famous book called Cosmos. It was later turned into a, a long TV series, extremely popular. But it starts off, that series starts off with this, with a narrator narrating this into this kind of beautiful uh, view of space. He says, the cosmos, and notice it's a capital C. The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. So for the materialist uh, or the naturalist, often those terms are used interchangeably, for the naturalist, for the materialist, the ultimate source of all reality is the universe itself. It's material universe itself. And like I said, this is the most popular 
uh, worldview of our culture today, and, it, and, and it's the foundation level for many other worldviews that build on top of it, say like Marxism or things like that. But, but it's all built on this foundation of naturalism. Uh, in his book, The Universe Next Door, which I introduced you to last week, which was his great book on uh, worldview, kind of what worldview is, but also it gives you kind of how worldview has, has developed over the last 500 years in Western culture and then been influenced by Eastern culture of nine different worldviews. And when he gets to naturalism, this is what he says. Naturalism has had great staying power. Uh, it was born in the 18th century, right, the 1700s, in the age of reason and so on. It came of age in the 19th and it grew to maturity in the 20th. It dominates universities, colleges, and high schools. No rival view has yet been able to topple it. Right? So this is the kind of uh, one of the most foundational uh, worldviews of our culture today. Now, the third worldview, worldview I want to just introduce you to is, is called pantheism. So pantheism, the word itself comes from two Greek words. The first word is pan, which in Greek means all. And the second word is the word theos, which means God. So you put them together, you get pantheism, all God. And that's basically what pantheism is. Pantheism, we're talking here about classic pantheism, and it takes some different forms, but in classic pantheism, uh, the universe is God, and God is the universe. So everything there is is part of God, uh, and you and I, we're all part of God. You can see the influence of this in New Age uh, kind of thinking. Um, and so in, in pantheism, there is no personal creator. In pantheism, uh, God is more of a life force, like a spiritual life force, if you will. You see this, uh, for example, in, um, in, popular, in popular level, you see it in Star Wars, you know, with all apologies to Dre, um, <laughs> that you see this, the force, right? There's the good side of the force and the bad side of the force, but it's, or the dark side and the light side, rather, but they're all part of the force, um, you see it in Avatar, kind of the worldview of uh, Avatar, right? So, that, so you, you see the influence of this in, uh, in kind of New Age thought and in much of kind of really popular thought today. You think of like a Deepak Chopra or someone like that who's had great influence that, that basically, hey, we are God, God is us. And so the goal, say, in New Age thinking is to realize that you are God and to be able to control the universe through your, um, you can create reality uh, once you realize that you are part of God and God is part of you, all right? So we'll talk more about pantheism later on, but these are the three basic options that we have when you come to worldview. What's the ultimate source? Well, there's either some sort of God, uh, uh, in one way or another, some kind of God who is created, there's the universe itself, and that's all there is, or there's some kind of uh, mixture. Like a, when you stop and think about it, like pantheism and materialism in some ways are like the opposite side of the same coin. So materialists would say that all there is in everything in the cosmos is made of material stuff. The pantheists would say, no, everything in the universe is made of spiritual stuff. It looks real, but it's not real. And we'll get to it later on. All right? Now, the next section we want to talk about today is we want to talk about 
worldview maps. They're in your note sheet, worldview, evaluating the maps. So one of the, one of the, one of the principles that I introduced last week is one of the metaphors that's very helpful in understanding worldviews is to compare a worldview to a map of reality. And this is one of the jobs of a worldview is to help explain the realities of life. Say, this, this is how life is, this is how life works, this is why it's the way it is, and so you can use your map to navigate life into what the philosophers would call the good life. But of course, the value of a map, as we talked about last week, is, is directly proportionate to how accurate that map is. Like if you get to an intersection, like I said last week, and your map says Devonshire in Tampa, and it's not, then chances are either you're reading the map wrong, or you've got the wrong map, or the map is wrong. Right? Something's, something's wrong. So a worldview is like a map. And so one of the ways that we measure a worldview, we evaluate it, is by saying, hey, does this worldview align with the facts of life that we all see and experience? Does that make sense? And so what we're going to do, what I want to do today is I want to take these three basic answers to the question of what is ultimate reality and I want to say, let's follow them as a map and let's compare them to the realities of life to see if they, 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 uh, if they predict if, uh, correctly, if they, if they align or not. Now, next week, we're going to be looking at the question of the cosmos, the creation of the cosmos, and how does that line up, that, that map of, say, materialism, how does that m- align with the facts of science? Right? We'll be talking about that next week. But today, I want to, talk, I want to compare these three worldviews to, the, uh, to uh, the, these maps of reality to the, the facts of human existence as we know them as human beings. So I want to describe for you three things that we know about human beings. There there are things that are so solid you cannot not know that. You cannot live outside of these, right? And so I want to give you these three facts about human beings, and then we're going to take each of the worldview and say, how does that worldview map align with these realities? So I'm going to give you three words, all right? So I want you to write these words down. And then we'll, we'll jump in and start comparing maps. So the first word is the word purpose. So one thing we know about human beings is that human beings have a deep drive for meaning and purpose, don't we? In fact, if you, if you, if you talk with someone and they tell you, yeah, I, I don't know what's going on in my life. It feels like nothing matters. It feels like there's absolutely no, I have no meaning and no purpose the chances are that person's going to be very depressed. They're not going to tell you, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I've got no meaning, no purpose, and it's an awesome day, you know? This is a good day to be alive. Really? Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing to life, right? Uh, my life means nothing. My suffering means nothing. Hard times mean nothing. It's just all nothing. It's so good, you know? No, when you, when you talk with someone and they're, and they're saying, like, I, I don't know if life's worth living, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, nothing makes sense, they're usually very depressed. It's interesting, in World War II, there was a very famous, uh, uh, very famous, uh, famous Jewish uh, psychoanalyst. Uh, his name was Viktor Frankl. Some of you may have heard of him. But Viktor Frankl uh, was put into a concentration camp as a result of being a Jew. 
and he made careful observations of there. And when he was out, he wrote a book explaining why some made it and some didn't. And you know what he said? He says, those who made it were those who were able to find meaning and purpose in their suffering. He said, those who couldn't find meaning or purpose, they died. The only see, meaning and purpose is core to who we are with human, as human beings. It's a fact about human beings, all right? Second, second fact. The second fact is morality. Now, hang with me here, because you might think that what I'm saying is that everyone has the same morality. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that hardwired into the human being is a sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. And we have a drive to defend ourselves in the right and to prove we're not wrong. And so I'm not saying that we all agree on what right or wrong is, but we can't live a day without talking about right or wrong. And so um, we may disagree on the details, but we all have this deep sense that some things are right, some things are wrong, and we can't live without it. It's impossible to live a day without it. Okay? Um, third fact about human beings is I'm going to call it personhood. That as human beings, you say, what do you mean by personhood? Well, I really mean two things, self-consciousness, and self-determination, right? So as human beings, we have a sense of self. I'm not you, you're not me. And we carry that sense all through our life. I, I look back when I'm 20, it's like I wasn't a different person, it was me, right? It's like you carry it throughout your life. There's a sense of, uh, of, of consciousness that we have. And there's a sense of the self. And on top of that, we have a sense of self-determination that we can make choices that really matter. We're not robots, we're not machines, we can choose. And all society is built on this reality. If you stop and think about it, if we're just machines, there's no basis to hold anyone accountable for anything, they're just a machine. So this is something that's very deep in human beings. Okay, so three things. Purpose in life, morality, a deep sense of morality, and uh, personhood, self-consciousness, self-determination. These are three things that we cannot live without as human beings. They're hardwired into us. And the question is, let's, say, let's compare those facts about human beings with these three worldviews to see, does the map align with reality? Are we at Devonshire and Tampa, right, when we, according to the map? So let's, let's start with naturalism. Well, naturalism is going to have a hard time explaining all three of these facts. And this is what we're going to see throughout the series, is that when we have a worldview, it should help us make sense of life. It should explain what we know to be true of life. And what we're going to see is naturalism has a hard time with all three. Let me just walk you through them. It has a hard time with purpose because at the core of naturalism is the belief that, the, that we're all here as a result of billions of years of accidents. And if all of life and all of creation is just a result of billions of years of accidents, there's no sense we can have any purpose in any of that. It's just all one big accident. Let's talk about morality. Well, it struggles here too. 
Because if there is no God, if there is no creator, if all that we experience in life is the result of billions of years of random accidents, then there is no such thing as right or wrong. You can have your preference and I can have mine, but there's no sense of ultimate right or wrong. This is what Friedrich Nietzsche realized. You know, as materialism was really picking up steam in the 1900s, then Nietzsche said, hey, we gotta think this through and what this really means. And so he was very bold, he was very brave, and he said, this is what it means. And so his beliefs, his, his system, his worldview came to be known as nihilism. And what it means is there is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no such thing as right or wrong. Nietzsche is the one who said, in a, in a philosophical sense, where, where philosophers have come, God is dead and we have killed him. And he said, once you kill God, you, you kill the standard of right and wrong. And he said, so the reality is, since we all know there's no God, we have to bite the bullet and admit that there's no such thing is right or wrong. And if you were to say, well, why in culture do we have that concept? He says, it's the creation of the weak to leverage them against the strong. Because at the base, all there's left is power and the will to power. Nietzsche was very influential in the rise of Nazi Germany. He's a German. His his philosophy was very much tied to this idea of the superior race, the strongest race, and the will to power. Well, what about personhood? Well, here's the thing. If you follow this out, Nietzsche was right. And materialists, if they are consistent, will often agree with this. That if all we are is a result of billions of years of accidents, then though we have a sense of personality, though we have an experience of consciousness, and though we seem to have free will, the reality is we don't. Because we are just a product of nature and the decisions we make are the product of chemical reactions in our brain that we actually have no control over. We're more like a computer than what you think of as a person. And you say, really? Is that really where this leads? You say, absolutely. Let me give you an example. One of the most famous uh, scientists of our times is, uh, is uh, Dr. Crick. You know, the guy that, he was one of the two men that uh, helped decode the DNA, uh, DNA, uh, genetic code. He's one of the most brilliant scientists of our time, but he's a, he's a thoroughgoing materialist, and he has the courage to look down the barrel of that gun and say, this is what it means. If there is no God, if we're here as a result of billions of years of random accident, because we all know evolution doesn't have any purpose, it, it leads to certain results, but it doesn't see those results from the beginning. This is, he says that he has the courage to look down the barrel of that gun and say, this is what it means about us. And look what he says there in your note sheet. He says, you, and notice the you is in quotations, because there really is no you. 
you, your joys and sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of identity and catch us free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You are nothing but a pack of neurons. So in the same way, in the same way that if you, you, add, you add two chemicals together and there's a chemical reaction, they, they don't think about that, they just do that. In the same way that our brains are simply doing the same thing. That we are the results material development over time, and though it looks like we have consciousness and it looks like we have free will, the, the reality is we're not. We're simply robots. And so this is where materialism leads. Now let me tell you this, that, and I'll mention this a couple times, but, but most people in our world today have not thought through their worldview or their philosophy. Most people have just assumed it because it's in the air. And it's just kind of a slogan. And so if you ever were to ask someone about these kinds of things, what, what typically happens if they're riding the horse of materialism and you challenge it, they're just going to switch to a different horse, maybe new age. And we're going to put them together, even though there's no consistency, it makes no sense, right? But this is where it leads. One of the most, let me give you just a, a dramatic example of this. One of the most famous materialist philosophers of the last century was a man, probably many of you have heard of, his name is Bertrand Russell. He's a very famous atheist, very famous materialist. And he wrote a book that was called Free Man's Worship. In other words, if, you're not a, if there's no creator, we're free to do whatever we want. And he says, so this is a free man's worship. And in this, there's, this is a passage he wrote. He said that man, he's gonna, he's gonna give that, He's going, to, he's going to list out several things that we know based on materialism. And he said, the first he says that man, and notice he capitalizes man, so he's talking about the human race, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision. In other words, no one saw it coming. There was no goal to this. That they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. If we're just material, you, you're dead, you're dead. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. And catch us, all these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth, from this point on, be safely built. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying as modern people, we, we now know there is no God. And we know that 
Everything we see is a result of billions of years of accidents that we have to face the fact there is no purpose. There is no meaning. Nothing will last. The solar system will go out. We will go out. There is no right. There is no wrong. And the only way a modern person can face the world is to start by embracing the unyielding despair of that reality. So this is no joke. This is where materialism leads. Let's talk about pantheism. Let's talk about how pantheism, uh, remember we're talking as a worldview map, how how does it map, uh, how does it align with the realities of human beings? This deep need for purpose and meaning, number one. This deep sense that of morality, some things are right and other things are wrong. And this deep sense of personal uh, identity, of that I am a person apart from you. Uh, I'm, I have a, I'm conscious of my life and I can make choices that matter. How, how does it align? Well, once again, we're gonna see that pantheism is a map that has a hard time lining up with this reality. Let's, let's start with the issue of morality. The problem with, with, uh, with morality, if you're a pantheist, is that, remember, the basic teaching of classic pantheism is that, is that God is all and all is God. So that, that means that all the things that you and I would traditionally call evil are not really evil. They're all part of the one. So in pantheism, there's this inability to really define good and evil and choose the evil, it's all, or choose the good, it's all part of the one. Uh, one of the books I want to introduce you to as a congregation in this series is an amazing book, one of the best books I've ever written on this type of, I've uh, ever written. <laughs> if I wrote it, it would be the best book I've ever written. <laughs> one of the best books I've ever read uh, on this kind of worldview issue. And it's amazing, and uh, so, so Nancy, uh, Nancy Piercy wrote this book, Finding Truth, and, and uh, part of her story is that she was much like the young man in the opening story that I'll get back to later, but she grew up in a Christian home, but she too in high school began to ask very difficult questions about life. Her church could not answer them. Her professors couldn't answer them, and so she went on a very similar journey, ending up as sort of an agnostic, materialist agnostic. Um, but, but in her 20s, when she was traveling through Europe, she met uh, one of the greatest Christian leaders, I believe, of the 20th century, and his name was Francis Schaeffer. And, and, and so Schaeffer began to challenge her with, with how this kind of atheistic, uh, materialistic worldview doesn't really fit with reality, and that started her on a journey and eventually led her back to become a Christian. And uh, so Nancy is now a, a philosopher, and she teaches at a, at a Christian university. Uh, but she wrote this incredible book, and, and I'll be referring to it, I'm sure, many times in the series. But in this, uh, in this book, she talks about pantheism, and she says, pantheism teaches that it's a mistake to draw any moral distinctions. Now, I want you to catch that. This is hard for us in our Western mindset sometimes to really hold on to this, but it's like, really? But it's really true. And so everything merges into the one. The end result, however, is that 
you cannot distinguish between good from evil, which means you have no basis for fighting against evil. And so there's no, uh, this world map of pantheism doesn't line up with the reality of human beings in terms of morality. But catch this, it also doesn't line up in the area of purpose or personhood. Because the goal of pantheism is to escape the illusion that you are, have a separate identity. And the goal of pantheism is to escape the illusion that the material world actually exists. And so in her writing, in the same book, Nancy writes, in pantheism, the divine, in other words, the God, remember the God is like this world force, whatever, the divine is, the, is an underlying, oh yeah, I'll wait while you turn your page. It's always funny how in church, like some are like fast page turners and some are they're like take their time. Hey, if, I, if he keeps hearing me, maybe he'll just give me a break. But anyway, um, and so she says, in pantheism, the divine, there's the God, is, in, is the underlying spiritual unity. So it's, he's the one, right? It's not really a he, but the one. Okay? What slips through the sieve, in other words, the part of human nature that gets left out is diversity, difference. <laughs> Siri's talking to me on my watch. She's got human nature, cultural diversity, and evolutionary theory. More than 40 years ago, the ethologist Conrad Lawrence, it's like awesome, all right. Thank you, Siri. Let's start again. It's like, that's as bad as the page turning. All right, in pantheism, the divine is an underlying spiritual unity. It's the one. And what slips through the sea then is diversity, difference, individuality. So in Hinduism, your individual identity is actually called maya, which means illusion. And catch this, it's that sense of individuality that is regarded as the cause of evil, selfishness, greed, and war. So the goal of meditation is to dissolve your being uh, of a separate self by merging with the cosmic one, the undifferentiated all, like a drop of water dissipating into the ocean. In Buddhism, the word nirvana, which of course is the goal, achieving nirvana, means literally to become extinguished. So if, 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 one of the greatest, if one of the greatest needs, uh, one of the greatest facts of human reality is that, that we have a sense of purpose for our life and that, that on top of that, there's a sense of personal identity, that I exist um, and that I can make choices in life, that in pantheism, all that is an illusion. And so once again, we see it, just, it doesn't really line up well with the facts of life. Now here's what I mean when I say it doesn't align. I don't mean that it just is a different theory of reality. What I'm saying is no one can live by either of these worldviews. So I want you to catch this. It's one thing to be Bertrand Russell and say these things. 
But the moment he walks out of his study and begins living his life, he starts living his life on purpose. He starts arguing for certain causes are right, certain causes are wrong. He has a deep sense of his own personal identity and his place in the world. He's making choices all the time. Are you with me? There's one thing to, to describe a worldview. It's another to live it out. It's one thing to say it's pantheism. Hey, uh, Atman is Brahman and Brahman is Atman. We're all one and this sense of uh, this, this a personal identity is illusion and the world is illusion. It's one thing to say that, but I guarantee you any pantheist who walks out the door and crosses the street in a busy city is going to look both ways <laughs> unless reality hits them. Right? Are you with me? So what I want you to catch is these are not just theoretical things. It's like, okay, well, if that's the map, let's live that way. And if your map doesn't let you live, there's no possible way you could live that way, then it's a good clue, hey, the map is wrong. This is not leading us in the right direction. Okay, so let's compare this to Christian theism, right? And so, so we have these facts of life about human beings, our need for purpose, uh, our deep sense of morality, and our deep sense of personhood and free will. And you say, how, does that, how, does, how do those facts align with the Christian map of reality? And what you find is it aligns perfectly. It explains all three. It says, well, of course we have a sense of purpose. We were created on purpose. We were designed for purpose. We were designed for relationship with God and relationship with one another and to rule over creation and follow the example of this beautiful creator and create beauty and create goodness. We were designed with a purpose. That's why we long for a purpose. Well, what about morality? We say, well, of course, the human beings have a sense of, the, of right and wrong. We were created by a God who hates all that is good, or loves all that is good and hates evil. It's part of being in the image of God, that there are some things that are right and there's some things that are wrong. Now, we may have messed that up by the fall and what we call right and what we call wrong, but we can't get away from it. It's interesting in our culture, those who would see themselves as a materialist, those who see themselves as like a new age pantheist, which by definition, neither one has a philosophical basis for right and wrong, are often those who are screaming the loudest. Whether it's social justice, the end of oppression, the end of... uh, sexual trafficking, the oppression of the poor. And so Christianity can explain that, that we have a deep need for doing what's right, even if we misunderstand what right and wrong is. We can't go through a day without a conversation, without talking about right and wrong. C.S. Lewis once said, you know, the, the philosopher that will say there is no such thing as right and wrong will be the first to claim when the faculty at his school are not giving a raise, it's not fair. Well, what about this sense of personal self and personal destiny and personal choice? How does Christianity align with that? 
It says, exactly. We were created to be in relationship. And in relationship, you can't be a robot. You have to have free choice. And in the opening chapters of Genesis, we're presented with the true trees. One that leads to life, one leads to death. Right? That, that free will is, is, is part of our core created being. And what I want you to catch as we go through this series is that not only is the Christian worldview the only one that actually aligns with reality, that's right, what I want you to catch is it's the only one that promotes the good, the beautiful, the creative. Christianity and the worldview have properly understood gives you the basis for the most compelling, reasonable, workable, worldview, more so than any other that it's up against. And this is a conclusion that's our young man in the story from the start of the day. It's what, what happened in his life. It's a true story. He's, uh, this man is named John Erickson. He, he now is famous for writing uh, children's books. But in his journey, what happened is he became a, a nihilist, a follower of Nietzsche, that the longer he lived that, the more he saw that that philosophy sucked, sucked life dry of all meaning and goodness. And it was such a bleak view that he, he dropped out of Harvard Divinity School after two years and he began a search for truth in his own life. And what he realized was not the, pro the problem wasn't that he hadn't, that he read all these other worldviews. The problem was he hadn't thought him through till the end. And as he began to do that, he began to come back to his roots and see that the reality is that the Christian worldview, as it really lays out, is the most beautiful, rational, reasonable, and compelling worldview on the market. And so he came back to Christ and his life began to blossom again. Now, as we wrap up today, I've got one question for you. Right? So the question there is on your note sheet. It's a section called The Ultimate Reality, One Key Question. So before I ask the question, I want to remind you of something I said last week. I'm assuming that in a congregation as large as, large as ours, in, a, in a, uh, an audience uh, out in, the, you know, in space, uh, kind of watching digitally, um, I'm assuming that we're coming from different perspectives. So my guess is that, that many of us here, you know, we're followers of Jesus, so by definition, we're Christian theists, right? I'm also assuming that there are many with us that are more seekers, that they're not followers of Jesus. Uh, they're trying, that they, they maybe you're just trying to make sense of life and you're wondering if Christianity has anything to offer. There may be others who are true skeptics. You're more like uh, the young man in a story when he embraced nihilism and maybe you once believed or maybe you never believed, but you're, you would classify yourself more as a skeptic. And so this, this series is for all of us. And so here's the question, regardless of how you classify yourself, the question goes like this, what do you believe about ultimate reality? What do you believe about ultimate reality? It's the most important question of worldview, it's where we start. What do you believe about ultimate reality? 
And so if you're here today and you're, you're more of a seeker or you're a skeptic, here would be my challenge to you. Maybe you've never really thought this through, but what is your answer to this question of what is ultimate reality? Would you call yourself a, a materialist? Would you identify with that? Would you, would you see yourself maybe as more of a pantheist? Again, what I see in our culture today is that very few people have really thought this through. And so we'll often have an eclectic view to worldview. Like we'll ride materialism as, until we begin to see where it leads. And then we'll jump horses. And we'll ride new age back not realizing that these are completely opposite. You cannot combine them, right? But this is what we'll often do. And so if, you're, if you would see yourself as a seeker or a skeptic, I'd just say, hey, what, where do you stand with this issue? And are you being consistent? Can you follow it through? What do you believe? But for, for those of us who see ourselves as Christ followers, this is also a critical question. If you've done the reading and faithfully different this week, you know this, that what, six to 17%, something like that, depending on estimates, uh, of people who call themselves Christians and go to church regularly um, have a truly Christian worldview. And so what happens to us is because we're part of culture, remember what, what Paul said in Romans, he said, don't be conformed to the world. And yet the reality is we're surrounded by the world. And so often our view of God and ultimate reality is influenced by these other worldviews without us even realizing it. So for example, you may say, I, I'm a Christian, I believe in the God of the Bible, and yet the reality is that in, in, in practicality, we operate like a Christian deist. So you say, what's a deist? Well, a deist was a worldview that was very popular at the time of the founding of our country. Many of our founding fathers were deists. So they, they looked at the complexity of creation and they said, there has to be a creator, but we don't think he's involved with the creation. We think he's like a, a clockmaker who made a complicated clock and wound it up and then left. And there, there are many Christians who act like this. So we we believe, say we believe in the God of the Bible, but we don't believe that God is alive today. We don't believe he's interacting with it. We don't believe he's really speaking to us or that he can guide us. We don't believe in miracles. We don't believe in the answer to prayer. We operate like a Christian deist. Sometimes we can be so influenced by naturalism. This is one I struggle with. And this is something I pray from time to time. Is that there was a time, kind of pre-scientific time, right, where you looked at creation, you think of the Bible, it says, it says that the heavens declare the glories of God. Right? And yet we can be so influenced by naturalism and we don't even realize it. For example, we talk about the laws of nature. Well, that's just a purely made up concept. The law of nature is just a way of describing that nature acts consistently. But do, did you ever ask yourself the question, who makes nature act consistently? That there's an incredibly huge, powerful God that's making things act consistently? Like in Colossians 1 where it says that in Jesus, all creation holds together. What about this one? Um, 
Pantheism. We can be super influenced by this. We, we say we're Christians, we believe in the God of the Bible, but without realizing it, we've really bought into sort of the God of New Age. Or just like, yeah, well, kind of all, you know, everyone, all, all paths lead to the same place, and they're all kind of teaching the same thing, and just the love is the thing. We'll just love, accept everything, and yet we'll see ourselves as a Christian. And yet, there's like, that's a far cry from the God of Scripture, isn't it? Right? It's a far cry. And so what do you believe and why do you believe it? You know, there in your note sheet, there's a quote from, well, before we do that, look, let's look at the Romans 12. This is a key passage, remember, for this, this whole series. Romans 12, 1 where it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. That's kind of this world's view of things, but be transformed by the what? <laughs> yeah, the renewing of our mind. Paul says God's will for you is to be transformed to be the people you're created to be before the fall, right? He says, but for that to happen, you have to have, your mind has to be renewed. You have to see all of life from a new perspective. And he says, then once your mind is transformed, he said, then you'll be able to test and approve, I love the word experience, what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so Paul says, hey, God has a vision for your life. It's to be recreated in the image of your creator, Colossians 3.9. He says, but in order for you to be transformed, there has to be a renewing of your mind. And then and only then can you experience his will for your life. That which is really good. That which is... Uh, that which is pleasing to him. That was just perfect. Now, here's the thing. Here's what I want to challenge you. When it comes to being transformed, there's no part of our thinking that is more important to be transformed than the way we think about God. In fact, in the last century, there was a very famous pastor, theologian. He wrote a very, uh, very famous little book called The Knowledge of the Holy. His name is A.W. Tozer. And look what he says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. And for this reason, the gravest or most important question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Were you able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. And so the question is, what do you believe about ultimate reality? And is your view being shaped by Jesus in his word or is it shaped by the culture we live in? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. So Father, we come today and we just... Uh, we come on humble knee, really. We just say that, hey, we are vulnerable, Father, that, that we, we take our views of life so much from our surroundings. We take them from the, the media. We take them from uh, social media. We take them from the books, the philosophers, from the, the kind of the, the scientists of our day um, that often are, are, are operating out of a completely different worldview. And so, Father, we, we pray as we talk about ultimate reality today, as we pray as we go through this series, that you would renew our minds so we can truly run free into the future that you have created for us, that which is good 
that which is pleasing, and that which is perfect. We pray that in this series, you'd help us to see the difference between light and darkness. And we pray that you'd open our eyes to new truths. As you said, Jesus, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.